I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Akeley, and this is Grace on Tap. This is a podcast that's dedicated to a look at the history of the Lutheran Church, the Reformation, through a, an examination of history, of documents, and uh, the context. Today, we are continuing a look at Luther's uh, Winter Postal. This is a book that he wrote with sermon commentary. So he would take a text and uh, the Bible text that would be assigned for that day, and then he would write about 40 pages on it. Uh, And his hope was to give tools to preachers to be able to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And also to teach them. He had a whole bunch of preachers that he he was responsible to make into Lutheran, formerly Catholic preachers who really were poorly trained, and he had to bring them up to speed on evangelical preaching, uh, evangelical theology, actually. And And he used this to do that. He did, and that's right. And so as you think about how does the Reformation happen in a country, one of the most significant ways it happened that we may not have as much acknowledgement of recently as we should is through preaching. And Luther's Winter Postals were very well published and received and distributed. And so today we're going to look at uh, the second Sunday in Advent Gospel. Now the second Sunday in Advent is uh, Luke 21, uh, 25 to 33. This is uh, the signs of the last day. So let's start out with the Gospel reading. So I'm going to read the Gospel. I'm going to read it in English, even though we're going to be talking about how Luther preached in German. (laughs) There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is to come on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees, and as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, one of the big things, and as we get into this, an important part of, of this whole discussion that Luther has here, he, he includes in the fir- very first paragraph of the postal, he has, he highlights, um, uh, uh, this is, uh, I'm sorry, second paragraph, Luke 21, verses 34 and 35, which says, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with gorging and drunkenness and worry about your livelihood. And that day will come upon you suddenly, for it will come like a trap upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And the reason Luther brought this up is because what we're going to see as he goes through this, he references back to how nobody's going to pay attention to these great signs that are coming through, that are that are happening, either by... Science will predict them, or he and he references now when Luther references science, he always references I think Socrates or or Aristotle, um, or he'll he'll reference you know philosophy when he's talked about science, reason. He'll say reason. We'll figure it out through reason, and so you'll be able to see these things coming ahead of time, and so nobody will really pay them the kind of attention that they need to when you're 
when these are signs from God, yes, they're eclipses, for example, perfect example. Eclipses are, are predictable, but it's still a sign. It's still a sign. So this is the paradox that the signs will be great, but few will notice and recognize them as great signs. Uh, Mike, I want to point out what you did right there is you showed how Luther just in the second paragraph, his commentary on the text stretches beyond the assigned text to give context and character to what we're reading. This is an illustration of how Luther is teaching um, a a hermeneutic of how to read the text in preparation for preaching. So the assigned text is chapter 21, 25 to 33. But in the second paragraph, he goes on and, and gives us verses 34 and 35. He's giving permission to preachers to look at the context Look at the verses before, look at the verses after. And it's a wonderful illustration of how as Luther is preparing preachers, he's not only assigning them the text to read, but the, the wider context. Well, and actually, you know, Luther often said, you know, you want to let scripture interpret itself. And so you don't, yeah, you have this, this, this you know, specific verses that are assigned, but feel free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be, you know, in this case, it's just a couple of verses later. But often he'll be pulling from a whole different book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he'll, he'll be pulling from all over the place to allow Scripture to interpret itself, to, to, to bring all of Scripture to bear on this single reading. And, and so that, that, you know, you really get all the depth as much as he can out of that single reading by bringing all of Scripture into it. And so we see that here. It's a perfect example, you know, because he's, again, he highlights. And we're going to see this through this whole discussion. Luther's going to be saying, yeah, this is going to happen and nobody's going to notice. This is going to happen and nobody's going to notice. And so it's going to be this, this cadence that he sets up, basically saying over and over again that, Going back to this this part of the reading that wasn't in the reading, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was part of again scripture interpreting itself that he's he's bringing more light into the specific reading. So this examination of the end times and how it doesn't get noticed is described in a time when people are going to be eating and drinking, building and planting, striving for earthly things, and they are not prepared to accept the great spiritual things God is doing. Now, as I think about this readiness for the end times, why is it that it gets hard to see? Why is it that people don't notice? And he speaks about how people will feel choked by the cares of this life. And as they're getting choked, you're just barely able to survive. You just focus so much on just breathing that you don't sufficiently see everything God is doing. You know, it's funny how I think in today's, you know, somebody in Christ's time especially, but even in Luther's time, that might be, um, of course they had, they, they were worried about life. They were worried about survival. They were worried about, I mean, there were big issues on the table. But they had, they had almost by, by necessity, they had time to stop and think time to, to actually consider what's happening around them <clears throat> as they went through and preparation for judgment that the artwork, the murals, the, the statuary would all have this sense of great judgment, the forebodingness of death. And so 
there's not as much looking with anticipation and joy to the end times, but great fear that I am dying, I'm struggling, I'm choking. Now, in today's day and age, you know, we we have entertained. Just seems so far away. We've entertained. We're entertaining ourselves to death, right? We we we're so easily. I mean, so much entertainment, so much um, distraction is avail- available to us. It's almost difficult to really focus on anything that requires any deep thinking. It, it it's hard. And I think Luther anticipated that he didn't. Some people think, well, Luther preached at a time that's just so different than us. How could it ever be relevant to us today? Luther wrote, these words testify sufficiently that people will be so secure and will be so deeply choked by the cares of this life that they will not believe that the day is at hand. Ah. And, and that security and yet choked by the cares of this life is this, this tension that I am, I'm secure in doing whatever I want, but I'm also choked and enslaved by doing whatever I want. That he says, you're not going to believe that the day is at hand. Now, what, what also is in this text, according to Luther, is there is a promise that some will notice. Um, and, you know, basically he says, uh, you know, when you, when you see these things, you know that it is before the door. Again, and then this is Luke 21, 31. And then again, raise your heads for your redemption is drawing near. That's Luke 21, 28. So he's, he says, you know, Christ wouldn't be saying this, Luther's point, is that Christ wouldn't be saying this if nobody was going to hear this, if there was nobody to respond to this word. You know, somebody is going to hear the word and somebody is going to respond. Somebody will uh, know that, that, you know, when you see these things, you know that it is before the door. They will raise your heads. They, they will respond to it. Otherwise, but we don't just give up. We just that, don't give up. That there's, there's a remnant of people that are going to see it, recognize and raise their heads. And it's necessary for us to, to pay careful attention that we would be numbered among those ready. Now, right after Luther goes through that, what's interesting is he spends this prolonged discussion um, uh, of talking about uh, that he really believed that that this was going to happen like the nearness very soon, very, very soon. Uh, you know, and so he, he, he goes through and, and he builds a pretty compelling argument, actually, as he goes through this. It's interesting at the very beginning of this part of the, of the, 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 the uh, postal is he, he be- begins it by saying, yeah, this is not, I don't know, basically. I don't know if this is going to be now, but I really think it is. And here's why. And, and what's, what's sort of, you know, honestly, me reading through this and putting myself in the shoes of somebody who was living in that era, I, I, I would say, you know what? I think you're right. <laughs> well, and the reason he thinks it's soon isn't just that things are getting dark and foreboding. He also looks at the tremendous advancements that are being made. He, he has this notion that with the rise of art and painting and embroidery and engraving, he says, the artwork and the beauty that we are seeing has not been equaled since Christ's birth. He, he thinks not only of just the, the dark things that are arriving, but the renaissance of things that are coming in uh, shows for him that anticipation that the kingdom of heaven is starting to break through more and more. And, and another part of all this is that he's talking about the difference between spiritual confusion and, 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 and misdirection and then physical 
you know, misdirection, physical sin. You know, so, and he says that that spiritual confusion and misdirection is worse. And that and at that time, you know, he, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church, he felt very strongly that they were, they were really leading so many people down a, a blind alley, we'll say. And so the Lutheran Church will, um, in the Book of Concord, will talk about the office of the Pope being the Antichrist. And we'll see some of that now in his commentary about how this renaissance of beauty is breaking through, and yet the church is making it hard to see that beauty as a gift from God. And this is an example. So this is a sentence from Luther. He says, This pope has blotted out Christ and become his vicar. That is true and all too true. He sits in Christ's place. To God, he sat in the devil's place. I won't mention here all the coarse sins, the unchastity, the murder, the infidelity, infidelity, the covetousness, and the like, which are all practiced without shame or fear. So for him, the, the grave concern is that things are getting beautiful, but we are becoming more and more dead, blind, heathen, unable to see it. And, and what was really, was like he said, the, the idea of the Pope being the vicar of Christ is is really that's that's really a <laughs> I don't know how to put this this is it's really rubbed Luther rubbed Luther the wrong way because this is the vicar of Christ is that I guess uh, maybe you have a better insight in what that means I guess so I, a vicar would be one who works in the place and the stead of uh, one who is greater um, and Luther's concern is that the Christ uh, that is meant to be at work in this world through the church has been set aside. In the throne of Christ, rather than us being people who point people to Christ, the Pope has put himself on that throne and is having everybody point to himself. The kissing, the ring, the all you know, all the different things that you know people were serving the Pope rather than the Pope serving the people in this era, especially. Mm -hmm. So, so you had this 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 period where Luther was saying, you know, the the Pope has basically, like he said, blotted out Christ. And, and so, again, this is if spiritual sin is worse than worldly sin and you have a huge percentage of Europe, you know, all of Europe um, following, you know, the Pope uh, who has blotted out Christ. So you can sort of follow the logic Luther is using here. And then he's basically saying, you know, this is about as bad as it can get. There's worldly sin and then there's spiritual sin. And the spiritual sin is more grave and more dangerous than any worldly sin because people are supposed to be able to see in the church uh, a lens into God at work. But instead, they're getting blinded and blotted. Uh, Christ is getting blotted out. And why is this something for Luther to preach about? Because he wants to um, take away the power of the church at his time. He wants to take away the enslavement that the church has brought about in his time. He wants to take away all the denials and the sins that are at work in the church today. For what purpose? So that the church would be better at serving people Christ instead of serving people themselves. Right, right. So so this is, this is sort of the, the context that Luther's writing in. And, and, you know, honestly, I think it's the first, I'm looking at this as... It's like the first 11 paragraphs where he's yeah. kind of laying out the scene, saying this is why we need to talk about the end times, because people are, are blind to what God is doing. They're unable to see it, and so it's not being offered in hope. And he so, wants to offer them hope. 
So, is it time for a beer break, do you think? Sure, we can do a beer break. So we've been going now about 16 minutes. We like to take a beer break about halfway through. The beer we're featuring today is one that was provided to us by Kirk Siefker, who wants to be a... a uh, I think a, a sponsor here of Grace on Tap. I'll take it. it. It's a Schwartz beer produced by Frygeist Beer Culture. Uh, Frygeist Beer Culture is an uh, American brewing company that wants to bring traditional German style beers to America. This one is a, a dark beer, Schwartz beer, a, a black beer uh, in the style of Thuringia, and it's known to be a smooth not roasty, very balanced type of black lager. By color, you would think it's going to be bitter. I would, but, yeah. but it's not. It's got a strong note of coffee and caramel to it. Coffee is a really good way. It's a, it's a real strong coffee type. Co- coffee and caramel. I agree with yeah. that. That's and it's got a lot of carbonation to it, but it's not one that's going to make me burp. It's kind of a mystery to me how it's got <laughs> such a good head of foam on it. Even after we're halfway through the glass... I still have a head of foam on it. Yeah, you know when I when I poured it, I, I I poured it upstairs and and I was having trouble getting the beer in because it just it foamed up so much and I was holy cow, this is a heck of a head. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, Schwartz beer, Freigeist uh, beer culture. This Schwartz beer is is good. It's and its ingredients like all German traditional beers are very simple. The ingredients are water, barley, malt, hops, and yeast. Really? No uh, high fructose corn syrup in this. Uh, nothing artificial. Nothing that's supposed to, I think, pretend that it's different than the others. Uh, you want to find it more? I just search uh, Fry Guys Beer Culture, and it's uh, brewed and, and canned in Urban Chestnut Brewing Company in St. Louis. And uh, we'll have it in the show notes too, right? Yeah, we'll have notes in the show notes as well. But it's a great craft uh, craft beer for us today. Thank you, Kirk, for. Uh, providing oh, it delicious thank you Kurt and uh, getting back now so after essentially establishing the the reason why to preach on the last times he then spends time talking about the signs so there's kind of five pages or so where he runs through the signs that are just in the text so like in Luke chapter 21 verse 25 there will be signs in the sun and he talks about the sun's going to lose its brightness. It's not as great as it's always looked. Um, and then he talks about the moon. It just kind of runs through them all. And he tries to, I think, be scientific. Um, but he's not a scientist. But in the end, he, he goes on to describe these signs in a way that says to us, they're not going to last forever. Not everybody's going to notice them. But they are significant. Yeah, and that's something that, uh, you know, going back to the... You know, when we spoke earlier, where he talks about uh, everybody, you know, being given in marriage is one point that he talks about that. And, and then he's another point where he's talking about uh, watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with gorging and drunkenness and worry about your livelihood. And, and so so Luther Luther is coming back to that point as he goes through each one of these signs. He comes back to that point and says, you know, like Evan just mentioned, yeah, there's going to be a sign, but it's going to be short-lived. Or it will have, it'll have a beginning and it'll have an end. And it'll pass. And nobody's really going to notice. They're going to say, oh, well, that's done. Let's move on. Let's go back to our old way of doing things. So if the moon is a sign, the moon might be a sign for a time. But it's not going to be that sign that you can always see and always just wait until you notice it. It's going to 
be there as a sign, and then a different sign might show up. So he's giving the example, Luther believes that when it says there will be signs in the sun, Luther thinks that's probably going to be eclipses. And he says, you know, eclipses come all the time. And he's, he sort of marvels at this point where he says, you know, and, and science is able to predict them. It's, you know, they know when they're going to come, and, they, and then it happens. And so, you know, yeah, these signs are going to be happening, and nobody's really going to care about it because it'll come, it'll pass, it'll be done, and nobody thinks about it. Um, the next one is, and the moon, again, lunar eclipses, I think, is what Luther talks about. I mean, when he's writing, he says, is it not that scarcely a year has passed of late in which a sun or moon um, or both have not been eclipsed, sometimes one of them twice a year? If these are not signs, then what are signs? But it happens that it's happened and then it's gone. Are we prepared to really kind of collect these pieces together and understand that they're significant? Right. And then the next one that Christ gives is, so we went through, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. And Luther believes that stars are going to be comets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he thinks you know, the comets will come through, they'll get shooting stars, and, and then that, that, that shower is going to be done. He says these signs appear and have appeared for a long time, but no one considers them. So it shall be that they will wait for other signs, just as the Jews waiting for another Christ. Then the next one that Christ gives, and on earth the nations will be distressed and tremble. That's Luke 21, 25. And Luther goes on quite, I'm going to say, what is it, 17 to 20, but this is more than three paragraphs. Multiple Um, paragraphs on this question of what it means to be in distress as a nation. So it's what he talks about is uh, that they're not going to be that's not being bodily distressed in, in uh, paragraph 18 um, it says for as we as we heard enough peace and property will remain that they will eat and drink build and plant buy and sell marry and be given in marriage dance and leap and entangle themselves in this present life as if they wanted to remain here forever. I take nations being distressed to be a be great torment of conscience. For since the gospel by which alone the conscience can be comforted is condemned and human doctrines are set up, which teach us to lay aside sin. And so it goes, it basically is talking about how the, that this legalism that is so prevalent in his day, and I'm going to say in our day, yeah. there's this, this legalism is so prevalent that that is the nation's being just that's the distress that people feel and i think it interesting how he talks about how the vulgar masses are not the ones that are going to be falling into this distress but he said it's going to be the people who want to live honorable lives but they've got some secret about them that is causing them to be unhappy and he identifies it as usually unchastity but he said this distress that is going to frustrate the nations and consume them day and night is that they are not happy. People are just not happy. And why is it? And he looks to it and it's not because they just need to live better lives. It's that sin causes this distress. We live in a time where sin is at work. And that's something that, you know, it's Luther talks and this is another a whole nother discussion that we've had before and I'm sure we're going to have in the future again on on free will mm-hmm. where Luther talks about free will and and where 
in order to have free will, you have to be able to do both good and evil, right? And because the good that is not self-glorifying or self-serving or, you know, oh yeah, I can go feed the poor to make myself feel better, which is self-serving. I can go feed, I can go and do, I can go and give money to this or that, you know, and, and put my name on a wall, you know, that's self-glorifying. There's all these different things outside of Christ that I can do that are good things, but that are in their, in your heart are we don't not. have the free will to be selfless. We, right. We don't have the free will to be selfless. It's only in the gospel that we have the free will to be selfless. It's only and in that the gospel given to us, yeah. that it's only in the gospel that we are finally free to do good without any any thought of ourselves. And and it's that that freedom of the Christian that Luther is saying is missing here. You know, in this legalism that is bound up in all these that he's talking about, this distress. You know, you can chase good works all you want, but you're never going to get there, right? It's never going to be enough. And, you know, you can do all these good things, but the fact is, is that we are not free to just give freely. <laughs> we, we, are, we are bound in our sin without, you know, and so that's, I think that's sort of, it's sort of an undercurrent to what he's saying. He doesn't go into that. I'm just sort of reading into it a little bit, but that's, that's the undercurrent I see when I read through this. Well, the, that undercurrent, that sense that not everyone is going to see this, not everyone's going to know it, uh, but God is trying to work through these signs to open up people's eyes. As he then goes on to the sea and the waves shall roar. He's got this interesting statement because this thought of these signs and they're like, well, these happen all the time. Why are they significant? He has an answer for that. And he goes that some stars fall, but not all. Some people are anxious, but not all. So it is that not all waters roar and not every place is windy at places at the same time. That God is at work in these particular moments, these particular stars, or these particular anxiousnesses you have, or these particular waters that are roaring in foam. And so part of the challenge he's trying to get people to do is to just not say everything is nothing, that sometimes into these small signs, there's something significant to see. Right. But what what he also talks about here in in this section on the sea and the waves shall war because he does go into you know have you not seen the wind or heard the waves roaring <laughs> he goes my, my Aristotle teaches that just naturally happens and Luther says hold on to the gospel which teaches you to believe that all great winds and water sprays are signs and though such signs have repeatedly occurred in the past they shall nevertheless be many and great before the last day. So, so it's that different than the scientific mind of Aristotle that just says these things happen. Don't pay any attention to them. These things just happen. He says they happen for a reason. Right. Every every sea roaring, every spray, every every comet, every eclipse. These are all just sort of gentle nudges, according to Luther, that we should we should go back and took, look at those things and remember the gospel. Remember what Christ has done for us. Remember the, the love that God has for us as these signs just percolate around us. You know, that, that these are all remembrances of, of his great power and his great love for us to, to save us in the gospel. So in preparation as signs of the last day, they're pointing us to signs that there is a God who is at work in the world.
Right. So as you get ready for the last day, don't just be steady and secure in your own self. You must learn to be steady and secure that there is a God who's at work in the world. All right. So the next one he points out is people will faint with fear and with expectation of what is coming on the world. And he points out, just as he's kind of done in all of these signs, they're not massive and big noticed by everybody. Here he says, this is not that great prolificate masses which despises God's signs and ascribes them all to nature, but there's going to be some best and most excellent who takes these things to heart and ponder them. These are the ones who are going to be fainting and withering and scared to death or next thing to death so that fear consumes them and makes them weak. What do they fear and wait for? Christ says, what is coming on the world? It's, it's the last day. And then, you know, what Luther says uh, is that, because uh, next paragraph, I am not yet able to say who these people are unless it should be those who have to deal with the extreme trial of death and hell concerning what? Euler? Is that, is that Euler? Tollet. Tollet. Oh, I'm I don't know. It's a little blurry in mine. <laughs> it's blurry in mine, too. Tollet uh, writes, uh, for such temptations consume... So he, he's basically talking about, about that there are going to be people who are going to be very upset about this. But what's interesting is he says that, that these people, this small group of people, they're, they're not going to be remembering the gospel, which is the... The it's the his advice is remember the gospel, take comfort in Christ, take comfort in God's love, and and these people won't. They, and so that's one of our signs of the end is that there will be people who are in distress that don't have an answer for that distress. Right. And and for others, they will see the end and they won't have the same distress, but they will know the end is coming. And what's interesting about that is I think we can all say that that's also always here. Right, mm-hmm. and Luther writing in 1521, I think, was when this was first written. It wasn't, I mean, in 1000 AD, you know, a huge percentage of people gave up everything with that, with this exactly what he's talking about here. This wasn't, this happens today. You'll sometimes have, we had a few years ago, somebody convinced a lot of people that the end was going to be on such and such a date, and a lot of people sold everything they had, and and it, just because they come. sold everything and were afraid of the end, that doesn't mean they're in a good spot. Right. And so what Luther is saying is these people are always going to be around. And again, this is again going back to this is always happening. There are always eclipses. There are always going to be, you know, roaring waves and uh, we'll say what are some of the other you know, people who are afraid. And, and this is always going to be happening. And it, again, it always should be guiding us back to Christ. It should always, all these signs just should be reminders that, yes, this is, this is what the end times, this is what sin in this world does, I guess is a good way to put it. This is sin in this world brings all these things. And, you know, just remember Christ's work and we, are, we can take comfort in that. The next sign he points to is the powers of heaven will be shaken. This one, he shows some humility. Uh, He's not quite sure what this means. Uh, He speaks of the powers of heaven or the powerful heavens or the the powerful uh, firmament of the sky of Genesis 1, the fortress or strengthening uh, that is we all are living in, or he says, maybe it's the hosts of heaven, like the angels, the Sabaoth and those. Um, And then he proposes that maybe it's the great conjunction of the planets, 
And, and you were talking about earlier trying to date the postal. Uh, 1524, 1525 is where this one is because he describes the great conjunction of the planets, which happened in 1524. And he talks about the planets as the chief of powers and the hosts of heavens. And this gathering of the planets is a definite sign of the world. Now, Luther himself wasn't too much into astro- astrology, but his teacher that worked with him and wrote a lot with him, Philip Melanchthon, who was at the University of Wittenberg with him, really thought that uh, uh, a watching of the stars could give you an understanding of the movement of the spiritual condition of things. And, and here he shows him some humility in the powers of the heavens will be shaken. He says, could this be the conjunction of the planets that happened in 1524? But then he says you should not be led astray into thinking that this conjunction happens because of a natural course of heaven. Christ calls it a sign. So he says it could be this, it could be that, it could be this. But whatever it is, it's not natural. It's particularly how Christ is at work. So it's a tough thing as a scientist for him to see the movement and conjunction of the planets and say it's not natural. It's a sign of Christ. What do you think of that, Mike? Well, I'm, I'm an engineer, of course, and I, I think that it's helpful. I personally, uh, first of all, it is, uh, I disagree with Luther on this particular point. It is science. You know, this is, <laughs> you can't predict with incredible accuracy these things. But what is, what I take away from that is, it, as I read through this, is to have the humility to not just bundle everything together and say that it's all science. Well, let's, I want to explore that a little bit. So it, that Luther's wrong saying that it's not natural, that it's a sign of Christ. How, what do you think he means? It's not just that it's not natural. I think he's contrasting as kind of a base fleshy thing versus Christ. It's a, a sign that points to God at work. Could it be by saying, it's science. We can predict with accuracy the movement of the planets. We know when these conjunctions happen. That that itself could be a sign that there is God. I think. I think all of it. Uh, it's. It's. You know. <laughs> you know the both both scripture. All of scripture points to Christ. But I also believe all of creation points to Christ. So maybe that's the contrast that Luther is building up when he says it's not natural. It's Christ. He's speaking to those people who see godless or godly. Yes. And I, I think that that's a false dichotomy. I think that, I, I think that it's important to, to recognize. And, uh, you know, in, in previous generations, there was a, the, you know, it was very common for those in the scientific community to understand that, yes, I'm understanding the science of whatever ABC, but at the same time, I am understanding that uh, that God's God's work is being revealed, and God's God's own nature is being revealed through His work. And so, there's. I think that this is all to say it's not natural. I think is an overstatement on Luther's part. I, I think that's so. Maybe a point of hyperbole. He's he's saying it's not natural, meaning it, it's not just. Natural, yeah, something more, right? And I, I, I can get on board with that. So, 
to kind of say, maybe we're heading in the right direction with this godless versus godly. This is how he ends this section of looking at this review of the signs that are listed in Luke 21. He says, only let us consider them as signs, great signs, signifying great things, but they are already forgotten and despised. I think this is part of our challenge today as we maybe are in a little bit more of a scientific age than Luther is, but things are becoming forgotten and despised of their greatness. We, we've gotten to this time where we take as normal the ability to look up into the sky and see the stars. We take as normal the ability to see the waters roar and the seas foam and the winds crash. We, we, we've just taken as normal all these things and maybe... There's something more than normal to it, it. it. It's sort of an advantage, I think, for somebody with a science background. Um, because, like, uh, I'll say, uh, there, there seems to be amongst the, <laughs> the scientific laity, <laughs> if there's such a thing, um, but those who aren't... The History trained, Channel scientists versus the actual scientists? <laughs> the actual is that what you science, mean? Yeah. Um, there, there tends to be this belief that science... Things are there's such a thing as settled science, and I've heard actual scientists say settled science. And there, for somebody who's serious about science, there is no such thing as settled science. The whole point of science is exploration, is exploration, is humility, is being able to say we don't know. And and statistically, yeah, it looks like this. One of the things that happened before uh, Einstein came out with the theory of relativity was there was a, a, a high-ranking uh, scientist who said, yeah, we have everything pretty much science figured out, but there's this one little thing we can't quite get a hold of, and we're going to just tackle that the next few years. And boom, that turned into the theory of rel- relativity. Next thing you know, we have quarks. You know, you start quantum talking, mechanics. Quantum mechanics. And the whole scientific world was put on its ear. Um, and, and so there's this, this in science, like, for example, I work in, in metals, right? And, and I, I know I have a problem as I talk with other scientists or some other engineers who overly believe overly with too much confidence that things can be predicted. And I mean, I, I ref, uh, my job, one of my many jobs is to review all the warranty re- returns. So we get literally thousands of warranty returns back globally. And I have the ability to look at all of them and, and review them. And so you want to see if there's a trend, if there's a manufacturing problem, is there a problem with the metals, exactly. the alloys? And, and so as I chase those, those things down, there are some, I'm, I'm learning about, I, I learn about the very, you know, how complex the, the loading of, of a you know of a product is how the the forces at play the the way uh, a, a wheel turns on it no, the tire guys I've talked to the tire guys they don't have any idea these are these are tire experts they don't have any idea about some of the most important things that you know, as an engineer you would think oh you have to know this no they have no idea they There's, just know it works they just know it works and, and when it doesn't work it's kind of confusing right and and it's like okay well we'll do this and figure it out and they'll fix that one thing but they don't know exactly all and it happens over and over and over again where you i've talked to one engineer who was big into sailing and he was like nobody really understands the way the wind works in a sail if you really look at it from an engineering where you want to be able to you know predict exactly what's happening and that's what i'm talking about is that 
that the level of uncertainty in this world is far, far greater than you know than anybody than than your than the laity understands. It's things are, and so there's this this. You know, there's a, it's easy. It's easier the deeper you get into science, I, I believe. The deeper you get into science, the easier it is to start saying, I don't know. And, and I'm good with that. And God's got this. There's, mm-hmm. It makes that, that but that's, that's a whole, I, I could go on about this. And I, I don't want to expose any, I don't want to divulge any company secrets because <laughs> all the things I don't understand. Yeah, you know, so this is this is what we're but this is the world that I live in is a world of uncertainty. So in the midst of the world of uncertainty, we're going to close this episode of Examination of Luther Second Sunday of Advent Gospel uh, by this sentence that Luther wrote. He said, "Let the unbelievers doubt and despise God's signs and say it's only nature. You hold on to the gospel." Amen. Amen. All right, so that concludes this episode. We're going to continue our discussion of the second Sunday of Advent Gospel in our next lesson. Uh, We'll continue with Luke chapter 21, verse 27, trying to understand what happens when the Son of Man comes. So we've looked so far at all the signs that precede the coming of the Son of Man. The next thing we'll talk about is when the Son of Man does come. Cheers. Cheers.